Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 139. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Everyone is fine and dandy. I do hope. Now, as usual, we start off with some apologies. The numbering system for the last few weeks for Oral Dites has been all over the shop. <laughs> I apologise, honestly. It's since I've been putting in them two Hugo specials, you know, it's all, all the cock. And hopefully we are on, actually, check the, the system. We are on 139, fingers crossed. So apologies for that. Anyway, I'll give a little clue what's coming up today. As you can see, we have the fine cover for Starship Sofa's The Captain's Logs, created by our very own D. Knife. Do have a look at that, D. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> My little cop. Stick a few planets in the background. Thank you, sir. Uh, knows how to please the editor. Coming up this week, then, we have the winners of The Last Then and Now. Then we have one of the main fictions, which is... None of that, Philip K. Dick, The Defenders. Next up is an article by our very own Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at science fiction history. Then we have the other main fiction in the Then and Now series, which is Juliet Wade's Let the Word Take Me. A few closing remarks, and that's your lot for Oral Delights 139. I hope you enjoy it. So I can now bring you last month's winner of the Then and Now competition. It was, again, Frederick Brown with his Hall of Mirrors against Mike Wood's Riskman. And the winner, Frederick Brown. 54% for Frederick Brown. Mike, sorry about that, sir. I missed out on one of the greats. Never mind. Thank you anyway so much for that story. Might get another one of you in the not-too-distant future. So we're on to this week's. Then and now, which is Philip K. Dick against Juliet Wade. Who will you pick? For those that don't know, I will give a little quick rundown of Philip Kindred Dick. Born in December the 16th, 1928. Died March the 2nd, 
1982, American novelist, short story writer, essayist who Wikipedia says Dick explored sociological, political and metaphysical themes in his novels. The novel The Man in the High Castle bridged the genres between alternate history and science fiction, earning Dick a Hugo Award for Best Novel in 1963. Flow My Tears, the policeman said, a novel about celebrity who awakens in a parallel universe, where he's unknown and won the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Novel in 1975. Dick said once, I want to write about people I love, put them into a fictional world spun out of my own mind, not the world we actually have, because the world we actually have does not meet my standards. In my writing, I even question the universe. I wonder out loud if it's real, and I wonder out loud if all of us are real. In addition to the 44 published novels as of January 2010, like that's in brackets, just in case they find some more, Dick wrote approximately 121 short stories, which most of them appeared in science fiction magazines. Some of his short stories have been made into films, including Blade Runner, Total Recall, A Scanner Darkly and Minority Report. In 2005, Time magazine named Ubik one of the 100 greatest English-language novels to be published since 1923. And in 2007, Dick became the first science fiction writer to be included in the Library of American series. This story is narrated by Matthew Stevens. So the starship sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Defenders by Philip K. Dick Taylor sat back in his chair reading the morning newspaper. The warm kitchen and the smell of coffee blended with the comfort of not having to go to work. This was his rest period, the first for a long time, and he was glad of it. He folded the second section back, sighing with contentment. "'What is it?' Mary said from the kitchen. "'They pasted Moscow again last night.' Taylor nodded his head in approval. "'Gave it a real pounding. One of those R.H. bombs.' It's about time. He nodded again, feeling the full comfort of the kitchen, the presence of his plump, attractive wife, the breakfast dishes and coffee. This was relaxation. And the war news was good, good and satisfying. He could feel a justifiable glow at the news, a sense of pride and personal accomplishment. After all, he was an integral part of the war program, not just another factory worker lugging a cart of scrap, but a technician one of those who designed and planned the nerve trunk of the war. It says they have the new subs almost perfected. Wait until they get those going. He smacked his lips with anticipation. When they start shelling from underwater, the Soviets are sure going to be surprised. They're going to do a wonderful job, Mary agreed vaguely. Do you know what we saw today? Our team is getting a leddy to show to the school children. I saw the leddy but only for a moment. It's good for the children to see what their contributions are going for, don't you think? She looked around at him. A leddy, Taylor murmured. He put the newspaper slowly down. Well, make sure it's decontaminated properly. We don't want to take any chances. Oh, they always bathe them when they're brought down. They wouldn't think of letting them down without the bath, would they? She hesitated, thinking back. Don, you know, it makes me remember. He nodded. I know. He knew what she was thinking. Once in the very first weeks of the war, before everyone had been evacuated from the surface, 
They had seen a hospital train discharging the wounded, people who had been showered with sleet. He remembered the way they had looked, the expression on their faces, or as much of their faces as was left. It had not been a pleasant sight. There had been a lot of that at first, in the early days before the transfer to undersurface was complete. There had been a lot, and it hadn't been very difficult to come across. Taylor looked up at his wife. She was thinking too much about it the last few months. They all were. Forget it, he said. It's all in the past. There isn't anybody up there but the leddies, and they don't mind. But just the same. I hope they're careful when they let one of them down here. If one were still hot, he laughed, pushing himself away from the table. Forget it. This is a wonderful moment. I'll be home for the next two shifts. Nothing to do but sit around and take things easy. Maybe we can take in a show, okay? A show? Do we have to? I don't like to look at all the destruction, the ruins. Sometimes I see a place I remember, like San Francisco. They showed a shot of San Francisco, the bridge broken and fallen in the water. I got upset. I don't like to watch. But don't you want to know what's going on? No human beings are getting hurt, you know. But it's so awful. Her face was set and strained. Please, no, Don. Don Taylor picked up his newspaper suddenly. All right, but there isn't a hell of a lot else to do. And don't forget, their cities are getting it even worse. She nodded. Taylor turned the rough, thin sheets of newspaper. His good mood had soured on him. Why did she have to fret all the time? They were pretty well off as things went. You couldn't expect to have everything perfect, living under surface, with an artificial sun and artificial food. Naturally, it was a strain, not seeing the sky or being able to go any place or see anything other than metal walls, great roaring factories, the plant yards, barracks. But it was better than being on surface, and someday it would end and they could return. Nobody wanted to live this way, but it was necessary. He turned the page angrily, and the poor paper ripped. Damn it, the paper was getting worse quality all the time. Bad print, yellow tint. Well, they needed everything for the war program. He ought to know that. Wasn't he one of the planners? He excused himself and went into the other room. The bed was still unmade. They had better get into shape before the seventh-hour inspection. There was a one-unit fine. The vid phone rang. He halted. Who would it be? He went over and clicked it on. Taylor, the face said, forming into place. It was an old face, gray and grim. This is Moss. I'm sorry to bother you during your rest period, but this thing has come up. He rattled papers. I want you to hurry over here. Taylor stiffened. What is it? There's no chance it could wait. The calm gray eyes were studying him, expressionless, unjudging. If you want me to come down to the lab, Taylor grumbled. I suppose I can. I'll, I'll get my uniform. No, come as you are, and not to the lab. Meet me at second stage as soon as possible. It'll take you about a half hour, using the fast car up. I'll see you there. The picture broke and Moss disappeared. What was that? Mary said at the door. Moss, he wants me for something. I knew this would happen. Well, you didn't want to do anything. What does it matter? His voice was bitter. 
It's all the same, every day. I'll bring you back something. I'm going up to second stage. Maybe I'll be close enough to the surface to... Don't. Don't bring me anything. Not from the surface. All right, I won't. But of all the irrational nonsense... She watched him put on his boots without answering. Moss nodded, and Taylor fell in step with him as the older man strode along. A series of loads were going up to the surface, blind cars clanking like ore trucks up the ramp, disappearing through the stage trap above them. Taylor watched the cars, heavy with tubular machinery of some sort, weapons new to him. Workers were everywhere, in the dark gray uniform of the labor corps. Loading, lifting, shouting back and forth, the stage was deafening with noise. We'll go up away, Moss said, where we can talk. This is no place to give you details. They took an escalator up. The commercial lift fell behind them, and with it most of the crashing and booming. Soon they emerged on an observation platform, suspended on the side of the tube, the vast tunnel leading to the surface, not more than a half mile above them now. My God, Taylor said, looking down the tube involuntarily. It's a long way down. Moss laughed. Don't look. They opened a door and entered an office. Behind the desk, an officer was sitting, an officer of internal security. He looked up. I'll be right with you, Moss. He gazed at Taylor, studying him. You're a little ahead of time. This is Commander Franks, Moss said to Taylor. He was the first to make the discovery. I was notified last night. He tapped a parcel he carried. I was let in because of this. Franks frowned at him and stood up. We're going up to first stage. We can discuss it there. The first stage, Taylor repeated nervously. The three of them went down a side passage to a small lift. I've never been up there. Is it all right? It's not radioactive, is it? You're like everyone else, Franks said. Old women afraid of burglars. No radiation leaks down to first stage. There's lead and rock, and what comes down the tube is bathed. What's the nature of the problem, Taylor asked. I'd like to know something about it. In a moment. They entered the lift and ascended. When they stepped out, they were in a hall of soldiers, weapons and uniforms everywhere. Taylor blinked in surprise. So this was first stage the closest undersurface level to the top. After this stage, there was only rock, lead and rock, and the great tubes leading up like the burrows of earthworms. Lead and rock, and above that, where the tubes opened, the great expanse that no living being had seen for eight years, the vast, endless ruin that had once been man's home, the place where he had lived eight years ago. Now the surface was a lethal desert of slag and rolling clouds. Endless clouds drifted back and forth, blotting out the red sun. Occasionally something metallic stirred, moving through the remains of a city, threading its way across the tortured terrain of the countryside. A leady, a surface robot, immune to radiation, constructed with feverish haste in the last months before the Cold War became literally hot. Leadys crawling along the ground, moving over the oceans or through the skies in slender blackened craft, creatures that could exist where no life could remain, metal and plastic figures that waged a war man had conceived, but which he could not fight himself. Human beings had invented war, 
invented and manufactured the weapons, even invented the players, the fighters, the actors of the war. But they themselves could not venture forth, could not wage it themselves in all the world, in Russia, in Europe, America, Africa. No living human being remained. They were under the surface, in the deep shelters that had been carefully planned and built, even as the first bombs began to fall. It was a brilliant idea, and the only idea that could have worked. Up above, on the ruined, blasted surface of what had once been a living planet, the leady crawled and scurried and fought man's war. And under surface, in the depths of the planet, human beings toiled endlessly to produce the weapons to continue the fight, month by month, year by year. First stage, Taylor said. A strange ache went through him. Almost the surface. But not quite, Moss said. Franks led them through the soldiers, over to one side, near the lip of the tube. In a few minutes, a lift will bring something down to us from the surface, he explained. You see, Taylor, every once in a while, security examines and interrogates a surface leady, one that has been above for a time, to find out certain things. A vid call is sent up and contact is made with a field headquarters. We need this direct interview. We can't depend on vid screen contact alone. The leadys are doing a good job, but we want to make certain that everything is going the way we want it. Franks faced Taylor and Moss and continued. The lift will bring down a leady from the surface, one of the A-class leadys. There's an examination chamber in the next room with a lead wall in the center so the interviewing officers won't be exposed to radiation. We find this easier than bathing the leady. It's going right back up. It has a job to get back to. Two days ago, an A-class leady was brought down and interrogated. I conducted the session myself. We were interested in a new weapon the Soviets have been using, an automatic mine that pursues anything that moves. Military had sent instructions up that the mine be observed and reported in detail. This A-class leady was brought down with information. We learned a few facts from it, obtained the usual roll of film and reports, and then sent it back up. It was going out of the chamber, back to the lift, when a curious thing happened. At the time, I thought... Franks broke off. A red light was flashing. That downlift is coming. He nodded to some soldiers. Let's enter the chamber. The leady will be along in a moment. An A-class leady, Taylor said. I've seen them on the show screens, making their reports. It's quite an experience, Moss said. They're almost human. They entered the chamber and seated themselves behind the lead wall. After a time, a signal was flashed and Franks made a motion with his hands. The door beyond the wall opened. Taylor peered through his view slot. He saw something advancing slowly, a slender metallic figure moving on a tread its arm grips at rest by its sides. The figure halted and scanned the lead wall. It stood, waiting. We're interested in learning something, Frank said. Before I question you, do you have anything to report on surface conditions? No, the war continues. The leady's voice was automatic and toneless. We are a little short of fast pursuit craft, the single seat type. We could also use some... That's all been noted. What I want to ask you is this. Our contact with you has been through vid screen only. We must rely on direct 
evidence, since none of us goes above. We can only infer what is going on. We never see anything ourselves. We have to take it all second-hand. Some top leaders are beginning to think there's too much room for error. Error, the lady said. In what way? Our reports are checked carefully before they're sent down. We maintain constant contact with you. Everything of value is reported. Any new weapons which the enemy is seen to employ? I realize that, Franks grunted behind his peep slot. But perhaps we should see it all for ourselves. Is it possible that there might be a large enough radiation-free area for a human party to ascend to the surface? If a few of us were to come up in lead-lined suits, would we be able to survive long enough to observe conditions and watch things? The machine hesitated before answering. I doubt it. You can check air samples, of course, and decide for yourselves, but in the eight years since you left, things have continually worsened. You cannot have any real idea of conditions up there. It has become difficult for any moving object to survive for long. There are many kinds of projectiles sensitive to movement. The new mind not only reacts to motion, but continues to pursue the object indefinitely until it finally reaches it, and the radiation is everywhere. I see. Franks turned to Moss. His eyes narrowed oddly. Well, that was what I wanted to know. You may go. The machine moved back toward its exit. It paused. Each month the amount of lethal particles in the atmosphere increases. The tempo of the war is gradually... I understand. Franks rose. He held out his hand and Moss passed him the package. One thing before you leave... I want you to examine a new type of metal shield material. I'll pass you a sample with the tong. Franks put the package in the toothed grip and revolved the tong so that he held the other end. The package swung down to the leddy, which took it. They watched it unwrap the package and take the metal plate in its hands. The leddy turned the metal over and over. Suddenly it became rigid. All right, Franks said. He put his shoulder against the wall and a section slid aside. Taylor gasped. Franks and Moss were hurrying up to the leddy. Good God, Taylor said. But it's radioactive. The leddy stood unmoving, still holding the metal. Soldiers appeared in the chamber. They surrounded the leddy and ran a counter across it carefully. Okay, sir, one of them said to Franks. It's as cold as a long winter evening. Good. I was sure, but I didn't want to take any chances. You see, Moss said to Taylor, this lady isn't hot at all, yet it came directly from the surface without even being bathed. But what does that mean? Taylor asked blankly. It may be an accident, Frank said. There's always the possibility that a given object might escape being exposed above. But this is the second time it's happened that we know of. There may be others. The second time? The previous interview was when we noticed it. The lady was not hot. It was cold, too, like this one. Moss took back the metal plate from the lady's hands. He pressed the surface carefully and returned it to the stiff, unprotesting fingers. We shorted it out with this so we could get close enough for a thorough check. It'll come back on in a second now. We better get behind the wall again. They walked back and the lead wall swung close behind them. The soldiers left the chamber. Two periods from now, Frank said softly, an initial investigating party will be ready to go surface side. 
were going up the tube in suits up to the top. The first human party to leave undersurface in eight years. It may mean nothing, Moss said, but I doubt it. Something's going on. Something strange. The leddy told us no life could exist above without being roasted. The story doesn't fit. Taylor nodded. He stared through the peep slot at the immobile metal figure. Already the leddy was beginning to stir. It was bent in several places, dented and twisted, and its finish was blackened and charred. It was a leddy that had been up there a long time. It had seen war and destruction, ruins so vast that no human being could imagine the extent. It had crawled and slunk in a world of radiation and death, a world where no life could exist. And Taylor had touched it. You're going up with us, Frank said suddenly. I want you along. I think the three of us will go. Mary faced him with a sick and frightened expression. I know it. You're going to the surface, aren't you? She followed him into the kitchen. Taylor sat down, looking away from her. It's a classified project, he evaded. I can't tell you anything about it. You don't have to tell me. I know. I knew it the moment you came in. There was something on your face, something I haven't seen there for a long, long time. It was an old look. She came toward him. But how can they send you to the surface? She took his face in her shaking hands, making him look at her. There was a strange hunger in her eyes. Nobody can live up there. Look, look at this. She grabbed up a newspaper and held it in front of him. Look at this photograph. America, Europe, Asia, Africa. Nothing but ruins. We've seen it every day on the show screens. All destroyed. Poisoned. And they're sending you up? Why? No living thing can get by up there. Not even a weed or grass. They've wrecked the surface, haven't they? Haven't they? Taylor stood up. It's an order. I know nothing about it. I was told to report to join a scout party. That's all I know. He stood for a long time staring ahead. Slowly he reached for the newspaper and held it up to the light. It looks real, he murmured. Ruins, deadness, slag. It's convincing. All the reports, photographs, films, even air samples. Yet we haven't seen it for ourselves. Not after the first months. What are you talking about? Nothing. He put the paper down. I'm leaving early after the next sleep period. Let's turn in. Mary turned away, her face hard and harsh. Do what you want. You might just as well all go up and get killed at once, instead of dying slowly down here, like vermin in the ground. He had not realized how resentful she was. Were they all like that? How about the workers toiling in the factories day and night endlessly? The pale, stooped men and women plodding back and forth to work, blinking in the colorless light, eating synthetics. You shouldn't be so bitter, he said. Mary smiled a little. I'm bitter because I know you'll never come back. She turned away. I'll never see you again once you go up there. He was shocked. What? How can you say a thing like that? She did not answer. He awakened with the public newscaster screeching in his ears, shouting outside the building. 
Special News Bulletin. Surface forces report enormous Soviet attack with new weapons. Retreat of key groups. All work units report to factories at once. Taylor blinked, rubbing his eyes. He jumped out of bed and hurried to the vid phone. A moment later, he was put through to Moss. Listen, he said. What about this new attack? Is the project off? He could see Moss's desk covered with reports and papers. No, Moss said. We're going right ahead. Get over here at once. But don't argue with me. Moss held up a handful of surface bulletins, crumpling them savagely. This is a fake. Come on, he broke off. Taylor dressed furiously, his mind in a daze. Half an hour later, he leaped from a fast car and hurried up the stairs into the synthetics building. The corridors were full of men and women rushing in every direction. He entered Moss's office. There you are, Moss said, getting up immediately. Franks is waiting for us in the outgoing station. They went in a security car, the sirens screaming. Workers scattered out of their way. What about the attack? Taylor asked. Moss braced his shoulders. We're certain that we've forced their hands. We brought the issue to a head. They pulled up at the station link of the tube and leaped out. A moment later, they were moving up at high speed toward the first stage. They emerged into a bewildering scene of activity. Soldiers were fastening on lead suits, talking excitedly to each other, shouting back and forth. Guns were being given out. Instructions passed. Taylor studied one of the soldiers. He was armed with the dreaded Bender pistol, the new snub-nosed hand weapon that was just beginning to come from the assembly line. Some of the soldiers looked a little frightened. I hope we're not making a mistake, Moss said, noticing his gaze. Franks came toward them. Here's the program. The three of us are going up first, alone. The soldiers will follow in 15 minutes. What are we going to tell the leddies? Taylor worriedly asked. We'll have to tell them something. We want to observe the new Soviet attack, Franks smiled ironically. Since it seems to be so serious... We should be there in person to witness it. And then what? Taylor said. That'll be up to them. Let's go. In a small car, they went swiftly up the tube, carried by anti-gravity beams from below. Taylor glanced down from time to time. It was a long way back and getting longer each moment. He sweated nervously inside his suit, gripping his bender pistol with inexpert fingers. Why had they chosen him? Chance pure chance. Moss had asked him to come along as a department member. Then Franks picked him out on the spur of the moment. Now they were rushing toward the surface, faster and faster. A deep fear instilled in him for eight years throbbed in his mind. Radiation, certain death, a world blasted and lethal. Up and up the car went. Taylor gripped the sides and closed his eyes. Each moment they were closer, the first living creatures to go above the first stage. Up the tube, past the lead and rock, up to the surface. The phobic horror shook him in waves. It was death. They all knew that. Hadn't they seen it in the films a thousand times? The cities, the sleet coming down, the rolling clouds. It won't be much longer now, Frank said. We're almost there. The surface tower is not expecting us. I gave orders that no signal was to be sent. The car shot up. 
Rushing furiously, Taylor's head spun. He hung on, his eyes shut, up and up. The car stopped. He opened his eyes. They were in a vast room, fluorescent lit, a cavern filled with equipment and machinery, endless mounds of material piled in row after row. Among the stacks, leddies were working silently, pushing trucks and handcarts. Leddies, Moss said. His face was pale. Then we're really on the surface. The leddies were going back and forth with equipment moving the vast stores of guns and spare parts, ammunition and supplies that had been brought to the surface, and this was the receiving station for only one tube. There were many others scattered throughout the continent. Taylor looked nervously around him. They were really there, above ground, on the surface. This was where the war was. Come on, Frank said. A B-class guard is coming our way. They stepped out of the car. A leddy was approaching them rapidly. It coasted up in front of them and stopped, scanning them with its hand weapon raised. This is security, Frank said. Have an A-class sent to me at once. The leddy hesitated. Other B-class guards were coming, scooting across the floor. Alert and alarmed, Moss peered around. Obey, Frank said in a loud, commanding voice. You've been ordered. The leddy moved uncertainly away from them. At the end of the building, a door slid back. Two A-class leddies appeared, coming slowly toward them. Each had a green stripe across its front. From the surface council, Franks whispered tensely. This is above ground, all right. Get set. The two leddies approached warily. Without speaking, they stopped close by the men, looking them up and down. I'm Franks of security. We came from undersurface in order to... This is incredible. One of the leddies interrupted him coldly. You know you can't live up here. The whole surface is lethal to you. You can't possibly remain on the surface. These pea suits can protect us, Frank said. In any case, it's not your responsibility. What I want is an immediate council meeting so I can acquaint myself with conditions, with the situation here. Can that be arranged? You human beings can't survive up here, and the new Soviet attack is directed at this area. It is in considerable danger. We know that. Please assemble the council. Franks looked around him at the vast room, lit by recessed lamps in the ceiling. An uncertain quality came into his voice. Is it night or day right now? Night, one of the A-class leddies said after a pause. Dawn is coming in about two hours. Franks nodded. We'll remain at least two hours then. As a concession to our sentimentality, would you please show us some place where we can observe the sun as it comes up? We would appreciate it. A stir went through the leddies. It is an unpleasant sight. One of the leddies said, You've seen the photographs. You know what you'll witness. Clouds of drifting particles blot out the light. Slag heaps are everywhere. The whole land is destroyed. For you it will be a staggering sight, much worse than pictures and film can convey. However it may be, we'll stay long enough to see it. Will you give the order to the council? Come this way. Reluctantly, the two leddies coasted toward the hall of the warehouse. 
The three men trudged after them, their heavy shoes ringing against the concrete. At the wall, the two leadys paused. This is the entrance to the council chamber. There are windows in the chamber room, but it is still dark outside, of course. You'll see nothing right now, but in two hours. Open the door, Frank said. The door slid back. They went slowly inside. The room was small, a neat room with a round table in the center, chairs ringing it. The three of them sat down silently, and the two ladies followed after them, taking their places. The other council members are on their way. They have already been notified and are coming as quickly as they can. Again, I urge you to go back down. The lady surveyed the three human beings. There is no way you can meet the conditions up here. Even we survive with some trouble ourselves. How can you expect to do it? The leader approached Frank's. This astonishes and perplexes us, it said. Of course, we must do what you tell us, but allow me to point out that if you remain here... We know, Frank said impatiently. However, we intend to remain at least until sunrise. If you insist. There was silence. The ladies seemed to be conferring with each other, although the three men heard no sound. For your own good, the leader said at last, you must go back down. We have discussed this, and it seems to us that you are doing the wrong thing for your own good. We are human beings, Frank said sharply. Don't you remember? We're men, not machines. That is precisely why you must go back. This room is radioactive. All surface areas are. We calculate that your suits will not protect you for over 50 more minutes. Therefore... The ladies moved abruptly toward the men, wheeling in a circle, forming a solid row. The men stood up, Taylor reaching awkwardly for his weapon, his fingers numb and stupid. The men stood facing the silent metal figures. We must insist, the leader said, its voice without emotion. We must take you back to the tube and send you down on the next car. I am sorry, but it is necessary. What'll we do? said Moss nervously to Franks. He touched his gun. Shall we blast them? Franks shook his head. All right, he said to the leader. We'll go back. He moved toward the door, motioning Taylor and Moss to follow him. They looked at him in surprise, but they came with him. The leadys followed them out into the great warehouse. Slowly, they moved toward the tube entrance, none of them speaking. At the lip, Franks turned. We're going back because we have no choice. There are three of us and about a dozen of you. However, if... Here comes the car, Taylor said. There was a grating sound from the tube. D-class leadys moved toward the edge to receive it. I am sorry, the leader said, but it is for your own protection. We are watching over you, literally. You must stay below and let us conduct the war. In a sense... It has come to be our war. We must fight it as we see fit. The car rose to the surface. Twelve soldiers armed with vendor pistols stepped from it and surrounded the three men. Moss breathed a sigh of relief. Well, that does change things. It came off just right. The leader moved back, away from the soldiers. It studied them intently, 
glancing from one to the next, apparently trying to make up its mind. At last it made a sign to the other leddies. They coasted aside, and a corridor was opened up toward the warehouse. Even now, the leader said, we could send you back by force, but it is evident that this is not really an observation party at all. These soldiers show that you have much more in mind. This was all carefully prepared. Very carefully, Frank said. They closed in. How much more, we can only guess. I must admit that we were taken unprepared. We failed utterly to meet the situation. Now force would be absurd, because neither side can afford to injure the other. We, because of the restrictions placed on us regarding human life, you, because the war demands... The soldiers fired, quick and in fright. Moss dropped to one knee, firing up. The leader dissolved in a cloud of particles. On all sides, D- and B-class leadys were rushing up, some with weapons, some with metal slats. The room was in confusion. Off in the distance, a siren was screaming. Franks and Taylor were cut off from the others, separated from the soldiers by a wall of metal bodies. They can't fire back, Franks said calmly. This is another bluff. They've tried to bluff us all the way. He fired into the face of a leddy. The leddy dissolved. They can only try to frighten us. Remember that. They went on firing, and leddy after leddy vanished. The room reeked with the smell of burning metal, the stink of fused plastic and steel. Taylor had been knocked down. He was struggling to find his gun, reaching wildly among metal legs, groping frantically to find it. His fingers strained. A handle swam in front of him. Suddenly something came down on his arm, a metal foot. He cried out. Then it was over. The leddies were moving away, gathering together off to one side. Only four of the surface council remained. The others were radioactive particles in the air. D-class leddies were already restoring order, gathering up partly destroyed metal figures and bits and removing them. Franks breathed a shuddering sigh. All right, he said. You can take us back to the windows. It won't be long now. The leddies separated, and the human group, Moss and Franks and Taylor and the soldiers, walked slowly across the room toward the door. They entered the council chamber. Already a faint touch of gray mitigated the blackness of the windows. Take us outside, Franks said impatiently. We'll see it directly, not in here. A door slid open. A chill blast of cold morning air rushed in, chilling them even through their lead suits. The men glanced at each other uneasily. Come on, Franks said, outside. He walked out through the door and the others followed him. They were on a hill, overlooking the vast bowl of a valley. Dimly against the graying sky, the outline of mountains were forming, becoming tangible. It'll be bright enough to see in a few minutes, Moss said. He stuttered as a chilling wind caught him and moved him around. It's worth it, really worth it, to see this after eight years, even if it's the last thing we see. Watch, Frank snapped. They obeyed, silent and subdued. The sky was clearing, brightening each moment. Someplace far off, echoing across the valley, a rooster crowed. A chicken, Taylor murmured. Did you hear it? Behind him, the leddies had come out and were standing silently, watching too. The gray sky turned to white and the hills appeared more clearly. 
Light spread across the valley floor, moving toward them. God in heaven, Franks exclaimed. Trees, trees and forests. A valley of plants and trees, with a few roads winding among them. Farmhouses, a windmill, a barn far down below them. Look, Moss whispered. Color came into the sky. The sun was approaching. Birds began to sing. Not far from where they stood, the leaves of a tree danced in the wind. Franks turned to the row of ladies behind them. Eight years. We were tricked. There was no war. As soon as we left the surface... Yes, an A-class leddy admitted. As soon as you left, the war ceased. You're right, it was a hoax. You worked hard under surface, sending up guns and weapons, and we destroyed them as fast as they came up. But why? Taylor asked, dazed. He stared down at the vast valley below. Why? You created us, the lady said, to pursue the war for you, while you human beings went below the ground in order to survive. But before we could continue the war, it was necessary to analyze it to determine what its purpose was. We did this and we found that it had no purpose, except, perhaps, in terms of human needs. Even this was questionable. We investigated further. We found that human cultures pass through phases, each culture in its own time. As the culture ages and begins to lose its objectives, conflict arises within it between those who wish to cast it off and set up a new culture pattern and those who wish to retain the old with as little change as possible. At this point, a great danger appears. The conflict within threatens to engulf the society in self-war. Group against group, the vital traditions may be lost, not merely altered or reformed, but completely destroyed in this period of chaos and anarchy. We have found many such examples in the history of mankind. It is necessary for this hatred within the culture to be directed outward toward an external group so that the culture itself may survive its crisis. War is the result. War, to a logical mind, is absurd, but in terms of human needs, it plays a vital role, and it will continue until man has grown up enough so that no hatred lies within him. Taylor was listening intently. Do you think this time will come? Of course, it has almost arrived now. This is the last war. Man is almost united into one final culture, a world culture. At this point he stands continent against continent, one half of the world against the other half. Only a single step remains, the jump to a unified culture. Man has climbed slowly upward, tending always toward unification of his culture. It will not be long, but it has not come yet, and so the war had to go on to satisfy the last violent surge of hatred that man felt. Eight years have passed since the war began. In these eight years, we have observed and noted important changes going on in the minds of men. Fatigue and disinterest, we have seen, are gradually taking the place of hatred and fear. The hatred is being exhausted gradually over a period of time. But for the present, the hoax must go on, at least for a while longer. You are not ready to learn the truth. You would have to continue the war. But how did you manage it? 
Moss asked. All the photographs, the samples, the damaged equipment. Come over here, the lady directed him toward a long, low building. Work goes on constantly, whole staffs laboring to maintain a coherent and convincing picture of a global war. They entered the building. Ladies were working everywhere, poring over tables and desks. Examine this project here, the A-class lady said. Two ladies were carefully photographing something, an elaborate model on a tabletop. It is a good example. The men grouped around, trying to see. It was a model of a ruined city. Taylor studied it in silence for a long time. At last he looked up. It's San Francisco, he said in a low voice. This is a model of San Francisco destroyed. I saw this on the vid screen piped down to us. The bridges were hit. Yes, notice the bridges. The leddy traced the ruined span with his metal finger, a tiny spider web almost invisible. You have no doubt seen photographs of this many times and of the other tables in this building. San Francisco itself is completely intact. We restored it soon after you left, rebuilding the parts that had been damaged at the start of the war. The work of manufacturing news goes on all the time in this particular building. We are very careful to see that each part fits in with all the other parts. Much time and effort are devoted to it. Franks touched one of the tiny model buildings lying half in ruins. So this is what you spend your time doing. Making model cities and then blasting them. No, we do much more. We are caretakers, watching over the whole world. The owners have left for a time, and we must see that the cities are kept clean, that decay is prevented, that everything is kept oiled and in running condition. The gardens, the streets, the water mains, everything must be maintained as it was eight years ago. So that when the owners return, they will not be displeased. We want to be sure that they will be completely satisfied. Franks tapped Moss on the arm. Come over here, he said in a low voice. I want to talk to you. He led Moss and Taylor out of the building, away from the leddies, outside on the hillside. The soldiers followed them. The sun was up and the sky was turning blue. The air smelled sweet and good. The smell of growing things. Taylor removed his helmet and took a deep breath. I haven't smelled that smell for a long time, he said. Listen, he said, his voice low and hard. We must get back down at once. There's a lot to get started on. All this can be turned to our advantage. What do you mean? Moss asked. It's a certainty that the Soviets have been tricked too, the same as us. But we have found out. That gives us an edge over them. I see, Moss nodded. We know, but they don't. Their surface council has sold out, the same as ours. It works against them the same way. But if we could, with a hundred top-level men, we could take over again, restore things as they should be. It would be easy. Moss touched him on the arm. An A-class leddy was coming from the building toward them. "We've seen enough," Frank said, raising his voice. "All this is very serious. 
It must be reported below and a study made to determine our policy. The leddy said nothing. Franks waved to the soldiers. Let's go. He started toward the warehouse. Most of the soldiers had removed their helmets. Some of them had taken their lead suits off and were relaxing comfortably in their cotton uniforms. They stared around, down the hillsides at the trees and bushes, the vast expanse of green, the mountains and the sky. Look at the sun, one of them murmured. It sure is bright as hell, another said. We're going back down, Frank said. Fall in by twos and follow us. Reluctantly, the soldiers regrouped. The ladies watched without emotion as the men marched slowly back toward the warehouse. Franks and Moss and Taylor led them across the ground, glancing alertly at the ladies as they walked. They entered the warehouse. D-class ladies were loading material and weapons on surface carts. Cranes and derricks were working busily everywhere. The work was done with efficiency, but without hurry or excitement. The men stopped. Watching. Leddies operating the little carts moved past them, signaling silently to each other. Guns and parts were being hoisted by magnetic cranes and lowered gently into waiting carts. Come on, Frank said. He turned toward the lip of the tube. A row of D class leddies were standing in front of it, immobile and silent. Frank stopped, moving back. He looked around. An A class leddy was coming toward him. Tell them to get out of the way, Frank said. He touched his gun. You had better move them. Time passed, an endless moment without measure. The men stood, nervous and alert, watching the row of leddies in front of them. As you wish, the A-class leddy said. It signaled and the D-class leddies moved into life. They stepped slowly aside. Moss breathed a sigh of relief. I'm glad that's over. He said to Franks, Look at them all. Why don't they try to stop us? They must know what we're going to do. Franks laughed. Stop us? You saw what happened when they tried to stop us before. They can't. They're only machines. We built them so they can't lay hands on us. And they know that. His voice trailed off. The men stared at the tube entrance. Around them, the ladies watched, silent and impassive. Their metal faces expressionless. For a long time, the men watched without moving. At last, Taylor moved away. Good God, he said. He was numb, without feeling of any kind. The tube was gone. It was sealed shut, fused over. Only a dull surface of cooling metal greeted them. The tube had been closed. Franks turned, his face pale and vacant. The A class leddy shifted. As you can see, the tube has been shut. We were prepared for this. As soon as all of you were on the surface, the order was given. If you had gone back when we asked you, you would now be safely down below. We had to work quickly because it was such an immense operation. But why? Moss demanded angrily. Because it is unthinkable that you should be allowed to resume the war. With all the tubes sealed, it will be many months before forces from below can reach the surface, let alone organize a military program. By that time, the cycle will have entered its last stages. You will not be so perturbed to find your world intact. 
We had hoped that you would be under surface when the sealing occurred. Your presence here is a nuisance. When the Soviets broke through, we were able to accomplish the sealing without... The Soviets? They broke through? Several months ago, they came up unexpectedly to see why the war had not been won. We were forced to act with speed. At this moment, they are desperately attempting to cut new tubes to the surface to resume the war. We have, however, been able to seal each new one as it appears. The lady regarded them three men calmly. We're cut off, Moss said, trembling. We can't get back. What'll we do? How did you manage to seal the tube so quickly? Franks asked the leddy. We've been up here only two hours. Bombs are placed just above the first stage of each tube for such emergencies. They are heat bombs. They fuse lead and rock. Gripping the handle of his gun, Franks turned to Moss and Taylor. What do you say? We can't go back, but we can do a lot of damage, the fifteen of us. We have bender guns. How about it? He looked around. The soldiers had wandered away again, back toward the exit of the building. They were standing outside, looking at the valley and the sky. A few of them were carefully climbing down the slope. Would you care to turn over your suits and guns? The A-class lady asked politely. The suits are uncomfortable and you'll have no need for weapons. The Russians have given up theirs, as you can see. Fingers tensed on triggers. Four men in Russian uniforms were coming toward them from an aircraft that they suddenly realized had landed silently some distance away. Let them have it, Frank shouted. They are unarmed, said the leddy. We brought them here so you could begin peace talks. We have no authority to speak for our country, Moss said stiffly. We do not mean diplomatic discussions, the leddy explained. There will be no more. The working out of daily problems of existence will teach you how to get along in the same world. It will not be easy, but it will be done. The Russians halted and they faced each other with raw hostility. I am Colonel Borodoy, and I regret giving up our guns. You could have been the first Americans to be killed in almost eight years. Or the first Americans to kill, Franks corrected. No one would know of it except yourselves, the leddy pointed out. It would be useless heroism. Your real concern should be surviving on the surface. We have no food for you, you know. Taylor put his gun in its holster. They've done a neat job of neutralizing us. Damn them. I propose we move into a city, start raising crops with the help of some leddies, and generally make ourselves comfortable. Drawing his lips tight over his teeth, he glared at an A-class leddy. Until our families come up from under surface, it's going to be pretty lonesome, but we'll have to manage. If I may make a suggestion, said another Russian uneasily, we tried living in a city. It is too empty. It is also too hard to maintain for so few people. We finally settled in the most modern village we could find, here in this country. A third Russian blurted. We have much to learn from you. The Americans abruptly found themselves laughing. You probably have a thing or two to teach us yourselves, said Taylor generously, though I can't imagine what. The Russian colonel grinned. Would you join us in our village? It would make our work easier and give us company.
Your village, snapped Franks. It's American, isn't it? It's ours. The leddy stepped between them. When our plans are completed, the term will be interchangeable. Ours will eventually mean mankind's. It pointed at the aircraft, which was warming up. The ship is waiting. Will you join each other in making a new home? The Russians waited while the Americans made up their minds. I see what the ladies mean about diplomacy becoming outmoded, Frank said at last. People who work together don't need diplomats. They solve their problems on the operational level instead of at a conference table. The lady led them toward the ship. It is the goal of history, unifying the world. From family to tribe to city-state to nation to hemisphere, the direction has been toward unification. Now the hemispheres will be joined and... Taylor stopped listening and glanced back at the location of the tube. Mary was under surface there. He hated to leave her, even though he couldn't see her again until the tube was unsealed. But then he shrugged and followed the others. If this tiny amalgam of former enemies was a good example, it wouldn't be too long before he and Mary and the rest of humanity would be living on the surface like rational human beings instead of blindly hating moles. It has taken thousands of generations to achieve, the A-class lady concluded, hundreds of centuries of bloodshed and destruction, but each war was a step toward uniting mankind, and now the end is in sight, a world without war. But even that is only the beginning of a new stage of history. The conquest of space, breathed Colonel Borodoy. The meaning of life, Moss added. Eliminating hunger and poverty, said Taylor. The lady opened the door of the ship. All that and more. How much more? We cannot foresee it any more than the first men who formed a tribe could foresee this day. But it will be unimaginably great. The door closed and the ship took off toward their new home. There you go. Copyright is, well, it's in Gutenberg's <laughs> copyright is anybody's. Matthew, that was a great story narration. Thank you so much. So next up is our Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Amy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time again for another look back into genre history. Today I'd like to talk about a really fascinating work that has proven to be as popular with mathematicians and physicists as with fiction readers. It's a work of dystopian fiction. It's a satire. It's a dystopia. It's a work of science fiction, even mathematical fiction, if you want to call it that. It's been taught in schools, revisited in a number of sequel works by different authors, and dramatized for film. And today it's enjoying a whole new surge of popularity since it's been discovered by those who love cyberpunk and steampunk. I'm referring to the 1884 work Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions, by Edwin Abbott Abbott. Abbott was a very interesting man, an English schoolmaster, theologian, and literary figure, 
who lived from 1838 until 1926. His parents were first cousins with the same last name, which is why he's Edwin Abbott Abbott. For many years, he was an educator. He became the headmaster of the City of London School in 1865, and held that position for 24 years. According to Oxford's Dictionary of National Biography, and I quote, his greatness as an educator derived partly from his organization of new methods of instruction, partly from his initiation of many innovations in the school curriculum, and partly from what can only be called his genius for teaching. He had a particular gift for and interest in the physical sciences, and that translated into his work in the classroom. He retired in 1889 in order to pursue his literary career, and it was all over the place. He was a real Renaissance man. He was a specialist on Francis Bacon, the English statesman, philosopher, and scientist, and he wrote a biography of the man. He also wrote, among other things, the early philological classic Shakespearean grammar. A number of works on theology, and a Latin textbook. What can I say? Abbott got around, but by far his most famous and most enduring work is the. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code Listen at bluenile.com for fifty dollars off your purchase. Bluenile.com code Listen. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands, and they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com/style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. Quince.com/style. 1884 novella, Flatland: A Romance of Many Dimensions. Flatland is told from the perspective of a square who lives in Flatland, which has two dimensions, and it's the story of not only Flatland itself but also this square's adventures in Lineland, which has one dimension, and Spaceland, which is where you and I live. A world of three dimensions. On the one hand, the book is a popular exploration of multi-dimensional geometry. On the other, it's a very clever satire on social, 
moral and religious values of the period in which it was written. Here is a brief excerpt by way of introduction. I call our world Flatland not because we call it so, but to make its nature clearer to you, my happy readers, who are privileged to live in space. Imagine a vast sheet of paper on which straight lines, triangles, squares, pentagons, hexagons, and other figures, instead of remaining fixed in their places, move freely about, on or in the surface, but without the power of rising above or sinking below it, very much like shadows, only hard with luminous edges. And you will then have a pretty correct notion of my country and countrymen. Alas, a few years ago, I should have said my universe. But now my mind has been opened to higher views of things. Isaac Asimov has described Flatland as the best introduction one can find into the manner of perceiving dimensions. Carl Sagan used Flatland to explain the possibility of other dimensions beyond ours in an episode of Cosmos. And physicists such as Lisa Randall in her book Warped Passages and Murray Gell-Mann in The Quark and the Jaguar use Flatland to illustrate their points. So, from a mathematical and scientific point of view, the book is really remarkable. But it doesn't stop there. Abbott used his two-dimensional subjects to talk about his own time in Victorian England and make pointed political, social, and religious commentary. In Flatland, men are portrayed as polygons. Their class is directly proportional to the number of sides that they have. So, for example, triangles are the lowest class, usually soldiers, sometimes convicts, and the highest class have multiple sides to the point that they closely approximate a circle, or the ideal shape, and this is the priestly class. Parents try for children who will rise on the social ladder by having more sides and more regularly sized sides. Among other ideas that prove that this is a dystopia, Abbott explores the ideas of euthanasia and eugenics. And these are the focus of some really chilling passages. Some of his most pointed satire is dedicated to the issue of gender. Whereas all men are polygons, all women are a straight line. This makes them, from certain perspectives, almost invisible. Here is another passage from Flatland. If our highly pointed triangles of the soldier class are formidable, it may be readily inferred that far more formidable are our women, For if a soldier is a wedge, a woman is a needle, being, so to speak, all point, at least at the two extremities. Add to this the power of making herself practically invisible at will, and you will perceive that a female, in Flatland, is a creature by no means to be trifled with. But here perhaps some of my younger readers may ask how a woman in Flatland can make herself invisible. This ought, I think, to be apparent without any explanation. However, a few words will make it clear to the most unreflecting. Place a needle on the table. Then, with your eye on the level of the table, look at it sideways, and you will see the whole length of it. But, look at it endways, and you see nothing but a point, 
it has become practically invisible. Just so it is with one of our women. When her side is turned towards us, we see her as a straight line. When the end containing her eye or mouth, for with us these two organs are identical, is the part that meets our eye, then we see nothing but a highly lustrous point. But when the back is presented to our view, then, being only sublustrous, and indeed almost as dim as an inanimate object, her hinder extremity serves her as a kind of invisible cap. The dangers to which we are exposed from our women must now be manifest to the meanest capacity in spaceland. If even the angle of a respectable triangle in the middle class is not without its dangers, if to run against a working man involves a gash, if collision with an officer of the military class necessitates a serious wound, if a mere touch from the vertex of a private soldier brings with it danger of death, What can it be to run against a woman except absolute and immediate destruction? And when a woman is invisible, or visible only as a dim sublustrous point, how difficult must it be, even for the most cautious, always to avoid collision? Flatland ends with the protagonist discovering Spaceland. When he tries to share the news with his fellows, however, he is imprisoned for the heresy Of speaking of three dimensions. A sad ending for a brave little square. In his Thursday next novel, The Well of Lost Plots, Jasper Ford has said that Flatland used up the very last pure original idea. And it is certainly a unique work that speaks on a number of levels. Ha! Many dimensions, as it were. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised then that Abbott's great work has inspired so many others. There have been a number of sequels written to Flatland, including An Episode on Flatland or How a Plain Folk Discovered the Third Dimension by Charles Howard Hinton in 1907, Sphereland by Dianus Berger in 1965, two books by Rudy Rucker. Geometry, Relativity, and the Fourth Dimension in 1977, and Spaceland in 2002, The Planiverse by A.K. Dudney in 1984, Flatterland by Ian Stewart in 2001, as well as short stories such as The Incredible Umbrella by Marvin Kaye in 1980, Message Found in a Copy of Flatland, again by Rudy Rucker in 1983, Tangents by Greg Bear in 1986. The Dot in the Line, a Romance in Lower Mathematics by Norman Juster in 1963. And Voluntary Committal by horror author Joe Hill in 2005. There have also been dramatic interpretations of Flatland. The Behold Eck episode of the original Outer Limits series was inspired by Flatland. As was the 1965 animated film Flatland, which was narrated by Dudley Moore and Alexandra Berlin. In 1982, mathematician Michelle Emmer made a film called Flatland, and in 2007, two films came out the short Flatland the Movie, which was a 30 minute animated educational film with the voices of Kristen Bell, Michael York, And Martin Sheen, and a 98 minute 
animated independent feature film called Flatland, which was directed by Lad Ellinger Jr. This version updated Flatland from Victorian England, setting it in the modern-day United States. And the 2004 documentary "What the Bleep Do We Know," which posits a spiritual connection between consciousness and quantum physics, has an entire segment on Flatland. So, for a novella written almost 130 years ago, Flatland certainly has had a long-lasting impact. I am happy to say that Flatland is available online at Project Gutenberg and other websites, and an excellent audiobook version, read by Ruth Golding, is available for free download at LibriVox.org. For the more mathematically minded, I would recommend the 2002 annotated version of Flatland, which includes an introduction and notes by Ian Stewart. Discussing at length the mathematical topics related to Abbott's novella, whether you view the story as a religious allegory, a biting social satire, a work of dystopian science fiction, or an exploration of multi-dimensional geometry, I hope you will enjoy Flatland, and I hope you've enjoyed our look back at the history of the genre. I look forward to talking again with you soon. Thank you, James. Thank you so much. Amy's going to deliver soon a great Peter Watts story as well, so do look out for that. Just, just a little prod there, Amy. Come on, <laughs> thank you so much. Next up, we have the next. Story in this month's then and now it is "Let the Word Take Me" by Juliet Wade. Juliet Wade grew up in California and learned French at an early age. Always been interested in science and toyed with becoming a biology major in college. She majored in anthropology and Japanese as an undergraduate, and then went on to do a more theoretical linguistics for a master's degree. She has lived in Japan three times and started writing fiction officially when she was studying for a PhD. And by the time her degree was finished, her son was born. She says she started to realise she'd never be able to stop writing. Her first professional short story, which is this one, "Let the Word Take Me," appeared in Analog Magazine in July-August 2008. She has a novelette called "Words," which appeared in Analog in October 2009. The story is narrated by our good friend Paul Kajiji and Julie Davis. Paul over there at Process Diary and Julie at Forgotten Classics. Links will be on the front of the website. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. Let the word take me, by Juliet Wade. David Linden held his breath as two Garaniki paused in the rainforest's murky twilight. Directly in front of his cramped observation blind, a gecko, mother and child. With their backs to him, he couldn't understand all that the child was gesturing. But one of the signs was story. Oh, give me a story! He whispered, knocking over an empty water cup in a vain attempt to lean closer through the station's video screen. Just one, just enough to let me figure out how to talk to you before they take us away. The mother gecko's whistling laugh echoed through the speakers as she stroked the young one's head with claw-tipped fingers. 
Even if Aramudi fears the word outside the house. Which meant the path to the village was public, so no stories. David retrieved his cup with a groan of frustration. Why should his vigil yield more now when four years of recordings from this location had given them nothing? The Garaniki didn't know that the eviction officer had arrived in orbit, and she would mean nothing to them if they did. Even a single story might make the difference. Father was up dealing with Officer Monroe right now. He could use a recording to argue that Garini Provisional Colony needed more time, a year or so, maybe, to assemble a collection of the canonical stories that made sense of the gecko's oblique language. Father had already won them a good six years' worth of extensions. No one could argue logic like the great Arthur Linden, who'd made his name across the Allied systems with his papers exploring the elusive structure of canon-based languages. God knows they needed him to win another. There was a worse problem here than just a lack of stories, one that would certainly get Officer Monroe summoning her transport ships if she'd ever learned of it. Despite thousands of phrases collected and learned in context, a thorough extrapolated grammar, and his passable grasp of the Garinia phonetics, Father had never managed to get a Garaniki to recognize that he was speaking their language. Father was infuriated by the idea of a linguistic problem he couldn't solve, but David had to figure the problem wasn't linguistic at all, or the great Arthur Linden would have solved it. No, it had to be a social problem, one linked to the mystery of when the geckos told their stories, as the Garaniki would say, why a Faramudi never talked outside the house. The house, David whispered. Damn. What if the gecko stories were told inside the habitations, like bedtime stories? David quickly clipped a mobile data recorder to his belt. The gecko pair had already moved off. They would have at least a hundred yards on him by now, and systems rules said that humans weren't allowed to trespass into the village. He grabbed his water cup and tossed it into the waste carryout, along with three days of food wrappers and system rules, too. He had to have a story tonight. The night air under the canopy was rich and humid, and the vegetation encroached too closely on the path for human comfort. By the time he reached the edge of the village, David's clothes were clinging to his skin, his glasses slipping down his nose. The gecko pair had stopped at a cluster of ground-level huts instead of climbing to the upper habitations. Lucky thing. David tiptoed close enough to take cover under the thick, drooping crown of the honey-honey. The mother was conversing with a pair of neighbors, snippets of myth mixed with graceful dips of heads and tails, while the child added occasional silent gestures. It was beautiful and utterly maddening. When the pair entered the hut, David crept around back to listen through the loose reed thatch. The parent was still making talk. Cridia's headscales shone. For example, a phrase invoking lateness of night, or Rospas drew strength from the sedi, an exhortation to eat. No stories, though, just phrases and silences. David listened until his head hurt, until the silences merged and swallowed the last of the words. 
Then he pulled away in disgust and walked back along the path. One more idea come to nothing, at the worst possible time. At the border of the village, a hand emerged from the speckled darkness and jerked him off the path into the deep shadows. David, what the hell do you think you're doing? David caught his breath. Father, if Monroe finds out you've been trespassing... I know, Father. I'm sorry. I... How stupid would he sound if he said he'd risk the colony listening for bedtime stories? It wouldn't win him the respect due to a fellow linguist, that's for sure. And Father would say he should have shipped him off-world to college, on Aramino Treaty Colony instead of giving in to all his begging to stay. I'm sorry. Well, never mind. So how did it go? Did you get the extension? Damn systems functionary, Father grunted. She doesn't care about the years of work we've put in. All she thinks about is systems resources being wasted on maintaining us here at Garini Base. David shook his head. How can anyone say we're wasting resources? We hardly import anything. He shuddered, realizing that resources must mean something else entirely. Does she mean our defense ships? But you can't take them away. It would be like handing the Garini rainforests over to be shredded by pirates. And since the Garini provisional colonists had been the first to inform the systems about Garini's biochemical wealth, it would be their own fault. Father was still back on system functionaries. This Munro's a meddler, he said. Wrecked my breakthrough just as I had it in my grasp, and now she's forcing me to extreme methods. Wait a minute, breakthrough? What kind? Father had always been selfish about sharing exciting data that might revive his gradually waning academic reputation. Did you hear a story? It's a Garaniki I met recently outside the lands, said Father. She's being hosted on the orbiter right now. I'd hoped for progress, but now Munro's gone and spooked her with a machine translator, so she hides in the bed alcove every time I come in. David stood aghast. Father, you kidnapped a gecko? Of course not. All I did was intercept her and arrange for us to talk privately. You know how badly we need a new approach. Monroe was the one who decided she should visit the orbiter as some kind of emissary. And now this is turning into a disaster. Father tugged at his short beard. Somebody has to get through to her. And you're the only one left. David flushed with excitement. Me? Your Garinya is much more natural-sounding than mine, anyway. What an opportunity! But this wasn't about pronunciation. Father had never let him in on a direct contact, and would never unless he was desperate. That probably meant that they only had weeks left, or even days. Add to that the fact that Officer Monroe's failure to communicate with the gecko was the only thing keeping Father from being charged with violations of the Accords on Indigenous Sentience. They had to get out of this somehow. But what could he possibly hope to do with a poor Garaniki who'd just found herself carried off to a diplomatic orbiter? I do not understand this prison. I have searched it. Tested every surface with fingertip and claw, but learnt nothing. Is it the cell of Duro Moody? But no, for there is no barrier of thorns here, 
no green of leaves, and no flowing water. There is only a soft bed of I know not what, a mirror basin lying empty and useless while a wall of silver reflects my face and a chair of knife metal where my tormentors like to sit. My tormentors have the faces and ruffs of simians, but are too large and have no tails at all. The male blasphemes before me. I must avert my face as he allows the sacred word to escape his mouth in this improper place, so far from the house of leaves and the mouth of singing crystal. Yet the female is worse. She sits and utters simian calls while a dark box in her lap, oh, save me, speaks. Imagine it. To hear the living word issue from a dead box. My heart quails when I think of it, and I hide my face in atonement for whatever misdeed might have brought me to this test of faith. It is not that I have never blasphemed myself. Every child has done so. My first memories are of the gathering in the house, of the sun glowing through the roof leaves layered like scales. Of us children sitting curl-tailed in awe while the word flowed through the people with the inexorable power of water, of learning the great tales of our people, questioning and understanding them. But why the great tales? I blurted out once by the granite basin in our kitchen. Aleo! my mother cried. She turned her great pupiled eyes away and gestured holy cleansing. So I asked again in the proper place, amidst the gathering, in that sacred hall before the mouth of singing crystal. The sacred word is life or death, she told me. It binds, it brings bliss or misery. It is the blood of the people that flows freely in its heart, in the house of leaves, and the great tales like flesh grow from it. Outside, the blood and flesh are clothed in small images that give understanding without unleashing the full might of the word, like scales over the skin. Living scales will not grow on the dead objects that surround me here. That is not at all what I imagined when I left my childhood behind in the lands and began my trial, seeking my own great tale. But the monstrous Shiora of the two faces greets travelers with pain first, wisdom afterward. For though a thousand things I neither recognize nor understand strike me dumb, yet in this desert of the word I have grasped a greater truth, that it is the very alikeness of things which permits social speech. How shall I bring this understanding back to the people? Can one forsaken by the word yet return to claim it? I cling to my faith to sustain me, repeating to myself each hour, This is my trial, and if I can endure it, it will become my tale. But in such a wordless place, how can my prayers be answered? It's not all bad, Father said, once the vibrations of the shuttle takeoff had subsided. David turned away from the window. 
With his stomach churning nervously at the thought of facing diplomats and geckos, he hadn't been enjoying the view anyway. How so? Think about it. In a way, I've been preparing you for this moment all your life. Your chance to act as a fully-fledged research scientist. I'm sure you'll do admirably. Oh, thanks. Yesterday's lectures would be preferable to a last-minute pep talk. Those at least had been accompanied by real audio and video of the captive Gariniki. She was young and bright-scaled, but certainly an adult, because the orbiter's hidden recorders had captured her commenting on object in her room. Patting the bed, she whispered, Yahara Moody's nest of palm. Drawing one finger along the bottom of the sink, it was... In the desert, Haremi could not see her face. And testing the locked door... Duromudi languished thirty days. Garinya, the translator's nightmare. It was awesome. You might want to think of a phrase or two to demonstrate, in case Officer Monroe asks, Father said. Just don't forget, her judgment of you and our colony's future will be passed on to all the Allied systems. David winced. Somehow he had to keep his cool, not let on that they'd been backed into a corner. There was one major problem. He'd spent hours in the night trying to convince himself that Father would never actually kidnap a gecko. How could he face Officer Monroe bearing that kind of guilt? But he just wasn't sure. Father, he said, please tell me you didn't actually steal her from the protected lands. Father's face reddened, but he gave a short laugh. <laughs> Just the kind of concern I should expect from a colleague, I suppose. Well, don't worry. Look at this. From beneath his seat, he pulled an artifact case and slid it across onto David's lap. She was walking the North Desert. David hissed in a breath as the lid came open. On top was a ceremonial knife in a scabbard of intricately worked grazier leather with a leaf-shaped blade and a hilt wound with stone beads. Underneath was a mass of white feathers. Lifting the top layer, he found himself unfolding a hooded coat of perforated leather densely clad with yarrow plumage. Whoa! Father, is this... Sun armor. Before this, I thought it was just another metaphor. It's gorgeous! David suspected it was an heirloom. The unblemished feathers were layered without gaps, but the leather inside showed that patches had been re-sewn and two of the worn tie-thongs had been replaced. He might have studied its detail for hours had the shuttle not docked at last with a clank and a hiss. They followed a crewman in Allied Systems Blue onto the orbiter and along to a social lounge where their hosts were waiting. Officer Monroe stood before an unlidded viewport, half-silhouetted by the dark-centered pink whirl of the McKinley Nebula. She looked clean and powerful there, wearing a sleek interdweller's clothing that would be totally impractical in the rainforest or on the gravel roads of Garini Base. Welcome back, Dr. Linden. Hello, David. David stood up straight. Nice to meet you, he said. We don't want to abandon our home to pirates. Father shot him a look. Officer Munro smiled. It's a hard situation here, David. 
the language problem means you Ungarini have had a more difficult task opening native relations than any colony in two hundred years. We don't want to see you evicted, but we've reached the limit on leniency permitted by systems law. I'm authorized to open diplomatic communication if it can be achieved within three days. But if it can't, I'm charged with revoking the colony charter and initiating evacuation. The Garinians must be respected. I respect them. I'm sure you do. Your father has a lot of faith in you, David, and I hope you can reassure our guest. I didn't mean to unbalance a delicate situation. David nearly informed her how stupid she was for approaching a gecko with a machine translator, but father was giving him the look again. That's okay, he grumbled. Officer Monroe, juveniles have special status among the Garaniki, father said. That will give David an excellent chance to put her at ease. I'll just take him down. A hall led out of the lounge. Its smooth, pale walls were trying to be sophisticated, but only managed to be boring. Father hustled him towards a door, twenty feet down on the left side. I thought I told you to act professionally, he said. You're not just David here. You're my son, and the representative of five thousand people on Garini Base. I'm sorry. And when you go in there, you're a representative of the Allied Systems, too. Father, David said, do you think being juvenile can really help me? You want me to use signs? Father shrugged. We've got three days, he said, herding him through the door. Do whatever works. As David entered, the gecko girl leapt to the bed alcove and backed tail first up the wall, toe claws digging hard into the pliant surface. David watched her breathlessly. She was a creature of jewels against the blandness of the molded soft form. Her brilliant green tail curled and uncurled above her head. Her huge amber eyes did not blink. After all these years, here he was, finally face to face with a real Garaniki. He had nothing to say. How could he use words, knowing she would close herself off? But how could he use gestures, knowing he'd demote himself to the social position of a child? Nervously, he pushed up his glasses and tugged at his homemade grazier leather vest. The gecko girl's flicking tail slowed somewhat at that. She blinked, double-lidded, and licked her lips with a blue tongue. It seemed enough like interest that David took off his glasses and held them out to her. The gecko climbed down from the alcove and came toward him. The length of her limbs was more noticeable when she stood upright, giving her a more humanoid look, though she still stood only as tall as his chest. She did not take the glasses, but pushed his hand aside and lifted a corner of his vest between thumb and forefinger. The plains thunder in summertime, she whispered. Kriaya was famed for dexterous fingers. David's heart thundered like the hooves of the grazers. He took a breath to reply, then stopped himself, realizing that it was his silence that had won him her speech. That and this vest made of the same leather as her sun armor. It was a sign that they shared something. Garini, the planet she probably hadn't laid eyes on for days. Maybe if he took her to see it, she might speak more. Trying not to startle her, he pressed open the door. Father and Officer Monroe were nowhere in sight. 
if he was lucky, they'd be somewhere watching the surveillance monitors instead of talking in the lounge. He beckoned to the gecko girl, who came cautiously up the hall behind him, seemingly aware that there was nowhere to run. The lounge door whirred open onto an empty room. Thank God. David pointed toward the view of Garini, but the gecko girl didn't even look at it. With a cry, she ran forward to where the vivid pink funnel of the nebula shone through the view portal and fell prostrate on the floor. Oh no, he'd just ruined their last chance. Then he heard her speaking, speaking and speaking, face down and low, but in complete sentences in a way no human had ever witnessed. Let the word take me. Let it not forsake my tongue in the desert of the overdark. On the mountainside, the mouth opens, singing, singing in the winds, and the people bow down at the birthplace of the word, and not a one but is taken with speech. Once was silence in time before time, and the people speechless clinging to the trees. Then the word issued forth from the sacred mouth, bringing civilization to the lands, but the people ask, Where did it arise? Oh, my eyes have been opened. The mouth of singing crystal is but the lesser mouth, the child of the mother, the mouth of the heavens. And what great word shall issue forth to me in the house of metal at its lips? But let it take me. Oh, let the word take me. The mouth in the sky, David mouthed, half-consciously, grasping for purchase in the floor of cryptic meanings. The word take me? Instantly, her head snapped up and her giant amber eyes blinked at him once, twice. Can a scaleless one be taken by the word in the presence of a mouth? She asked. You are not of the people, nor of the lands. Where does a man of skin come from that the word can touch him? She had heard him. David felt sweat break on his forehead and did the only reasonable thing he could think of. He answered, My name is David, he said. I'm a human. Human comes from... To say Garini would mislead her, but to explain the allied systems would only confuse her. God help him. Why did this have to be about diplomacy? From a place called Earth, which lies on the other side of the McKinley Nebula, he pointed to it. She gasped at him, blue-mouthed. We are your neighbors, he said. We have only three days before we leave. We do not want to leave. We love Garini. This was ridiculous. He wasn't speaking. He was constructing sentences like a machine. We wish to speak to the elders of the people for peace. I wish to speak. The gecko girl cocked her head to one side. The word issues from the mouth, David. There is only one place to speak to the elders. In the place of the word, it does not matter where you came from. You must come to the gathering in the house of leaves. I have come to understand that the young human, David, is possessed. Maybe he is young Tarias, the speaker. For Tarias was born within the sacred mouth amidst the songs of crystals, so filled with the power of the word that he could not hold his tongue for anyone, 
not until the words coursing energy wore him away to an early death. A man of skin and hair like one of the people? I would have thought such a thing impossible. But that was when I believed the sacred mouth unique and the gift of the word due only to the people. Yet now I have beheld the mouth of the heavens in its true form and vastness. No longer merely the flower of the overdark it appears from the treetops of the lands. And I find I have belittled its true power. If the humans have emerged from it, then perhaps they too cannot hold their tongues. For who can control the might of the word once it has been released? So it surely is with David. and I pity him the wasting death that comes to an overused vessel of the word. Even as I envy him what he must feel, being so taken. Yesterday, when I told him to come to the house of leaves, I was so certain. There before me stood one taken by the word, asking to speak, nearly shaking with its force passing through him. Let him come, I thought, and he shall have what he desires and bring word of the mouth of the heavens to the people. Yet now I wonder if it was only my own desire to end my trial, to say what I needed so I might return home to the lands with my tale. Today High Elders Saranu Moody heard me speak of my journey. We stood within the lips of the mouth of Singing Crystal, where the slightest claw tap is transformed into echoing music. Before him, I felt like a blaspheming child. Worse, a heretic. Lucky indeed to receive his patience and tolerance. Luckier that he has seen fit to grant my request to appear in the House of Leaves and to have my trial judged before the people in the presence of David and the other Simeons, Arthur, and Monroe. How did young Riomus feel on his return from trial, bringing amphibious companions from south of the lands? The gathering speaks of him as confident, triumphant in expanding the reach of the people. Yet his companions gestured like children, and did not lay claim to the word as mine do. David has tried to restrain his possessed tongue. another sign that he is worthy to be heard. Yet I see Arthur press him with simian calls, and I am afraid. Afraid, for I am no longer a child, but not yet among the moody, and still I shall bring strangers to the house of leaves. May the word save me. David sweated with more than rainforest heat, standing in a dense thicket of Sinamo outside the house of leaves. As much as they'd talked in the presence of the nebula, Alayo hadn't said a single word to him since, and he couldn't for the life of him figure out why. Father knew something was wrong, but there hadn't been enough time to discuss it because Monroe had jumped to conclusions and whisked them down here with unholy speed to meet her artificial deadline. They couldn't afford to reveal that she was shoving them blind into their only opportunity to speak. Officer Monroe smiled. Melting in her two pretty clothes. I'm still impressed to see how you've turned linguistic findings into actual results, she said. 
Mouth of singing crystal, a cave on a mountainside, and houses of leaves, an actual place. It must have taken years of work to separate the literal from the metaphorical. Father stared at her while sweat ran down his temples into his beard, no doubt still struggling with their linguistic problem. Oh, yes, he replied at last. Years of work. David didn't mention that when years of work failed, blind luck might also do the trick. He tried to ignore them and the two somber gecko escorts, listening instead to the musical hum emitted when the wind blew across the mouth of the singing crystal. About the official treaty, said Officer Monroe. You let me know once you've opened communication for me, Dr. Linden, and I'll join the discussion then. David couldn't leave that one alone. Not with a machine translator, you won't. Shush. Father turned back to Monroe with an embarrassed smile. Well, Officer Monroe, we won't ask you to speak immediately. I'm thinking we should let David start, since he's the one with the existing relationship with our native ambassador. If it comes to that, I'll translate for you. You've got to keep your machine translator for incoming only. She frowned. If it comes to that, why wouldn't it come to that? Well, of course it will, Father said. David shoved his hands in his pockets. I think I'll let Alayo do most of the talking. Officer Monroe looked surprised. She glanced at their escorts and lowered her voice. David, that's a lot of trust to place in such a new ambassador. I trust her. Honesty wasn't their problem anyway. The real problem was this inescapable feeling that he was missing something important, hearing words but only getting part of what they really meant. Alayo had said several times that she was on trial, looking for a great tale. A great tale had to be one of the stories of the canon. But how could she be looking for one? What would she be on trial for? She was always talking about the power of sacred words. But how could he tell which ones were sacred when she was so reverent in everything she said? He could only hope they would let him speak and that when he did, he wouldn't come out sounding like a complete idiot. Soon, Alayo's patterned arrowhead face poked in. She nodded to him and, of all things, gestured to their escorts, who straightened and stamped feet. David swore under his breath. Was she a juvenile? But how could that be when she'd been talking to herself on the ship? Munro said, Is something wrong? No, nothing. Father spoke quickly. It's okay. David's just nervous now that we're going in. Aren't you, David? Yeah, David said, staring at Alayo. Sure. A path of flat stones wound by just outside, taking them to the entrance of the House of Leaves. From the shuttle, the house had resembled the humped back of some rainforest reptile. Up close, it was a marvel of natural materials construction. A huge, overturned basket of thick withes, roofed with yarn leaves. The entry was a circular opening, gecko-sized, so David had to stoop low and step high to squeeze through. And the space within was large enough to hold. It was hard to tell at first glance. There was so many. Garaniki in groups of the leaf-littered floor, on enormous raised stones, even climbing along the basket walls. Probably over five hundred, more than four villages worth. If they ever hoped to be heard, this was the place to be. The High Elder is first to receive the sacred word, Alayo said laying long, delicate, 
claw-tipped fingers on his arm. Stay here quiet until the word comes to you. She cocked her head and blinked her huge eyes in a gesture of amusement. Try very hard, David. Soon, a gong sounded. David sat down where the woven wicker pressed into his back. The house hushed and other sounds became audible. The gurgle of flowing water, a rustling in the sun-struck leaves overhead, and the strange high humming of the mouth, rising and falling with the winds upon the mountain. A dull-scaled male Garaniki stepped onto a high rock at the center of the house, bearing a staff of twisted wood, and made a keening sound that gradually rose in pitch to match the windy hum. Oh, let the sacred word take me. I, Elder Sarinumudi, is taken by the sacred word. The reply was enormous, a simultaneous chorus from every throat in the hall that thrummed in the wall at David's back. Father looked startled, and Officer Monroe, who had barely settled, almost jumped to her feet. The elder wrapped the heel of the staff on the rock. On the mountainside the mouth opens, he cried. Singing, singing in the winds, and the people bow down at the birthplace of the word. And not a one but is taken with speech. David suddenly realized that Alayo had said that, exactly that, in the viewing lounge. Maybe it was an invocation. And he glanced at father and found father looking back. Alayo climbed up to the place beside the elder, and an echo of the mouth's song swelled amidst the gathering, then ebbed again into silence. The gecko girl performed a dipping bow that ran from her nose to the tip of her tail, while heads bowed throughout the crowd. Not far from where they sat, a mother Garaniki took a tiny child by the nose and bobbed its head. Young Alayo today returns from trial, said the elder. She shall be taken by the word before the gathering and be judged. Alayo raised her whistle-tone voice, and again the eerie hum washed through the gathering. Let the sacred word take me. The people gather in the house of leaves before the mouth. The word flows through the gathering, and I speak. The thrumming chorus responded, Alayo is taken by the sacred word. I speak my trial. It is a tale of strangers. The feet of Charismundi in a foreign land, replied the gathering at once. No, said Alayo. Not Charismundi, these, but strangers from far beyond the lands, men of skin who swim through the overdark in pools of air that they carry in shells of fired metal. There was a pause. The crowd moved uncertainly. An absence of speech was like a lack of breath. Beautiful golden scale, Gaya Moody, plying the river Os? A voice asked. No, said another. The shield of Saramin Moody, forged over an entire year. Both, I tell you, said Alayo. When you hear what I have seen, you will understand these stranger people. They know of things beyond the reach of the great tales before which even the singing crystal of the mouth falls silent in wonder. Blasphemy! Alayo cocked her head towards that voice. I heard much blasphemy during my trial. My journey took me to a place so strange, the words of the great tales fell away from my tongue and left me silent, without means to judge. That's it. 
father gasped, a long, tearful sigh. Oh, David, that's it. God, it's been eluding me for so long, David whispered. You mean she's telling a tale? A new one she's created about her time with us? The rest of them are judging what she says in terms of the pre-existing canon, deciding what to think about what she's been through. It's no wonder we've never heard any tales. I had no idea there might be a single place where both adults and juveniles could talk normally. I bet every community has something like it, though the mouth itself is probably unique. What? Officer Monroe whispered. You mean they can only speak in here? Why? Father hesitated. Well, because the language is sacred, David said, swept up as the pattern became clear. Not just some words, all of them. That's why the adults limit themselves to the canonical images outside the house. And the children, well, they would have to learn it in here, wouldn't they? There's no way to learn it solely from context. Then he saw Officer Monroe's face pale and realized what he'd just said. You never learned it. Her voice was indignant. That's what you're telling me, isn't it? No, no, we have, Father said, but too late. You haven't, said Monroe. If you've never been here before, then you can't have heard these stories before, and that means you haven't learned the language at all. You're nowhere near opening relations. That's not true, Father retorted. You don't have to hear stories to speak the language. David speaks well enough to please any of these people. You're lying. Heads were turning toward them, double-lidded eyes blinking. Quiet, said David. You'll get us in tr- He was drowned out by a sudden roar. The venomous snake within our walls, and vile Thorax Moody at the door. Monroe leapt to her feet, fumbling in a pouch at her belt. What was she looking for? A communicator to call the evacuation? A weapon, God forbid? Monroe! David shouted. He leapt for her left hand. Father grabbed for her right. Alayo's voice shrieked across the surging mob of reptiles. No! Wait! Then came the rap of the staff and the elder's voice. No, this is no venomous snake. The elders sent young Alayo into the wilderness for trial, and when she returned with companions, brought her to the House of Leaves to give herself to the word before the people. The wave of chaos froze at its breaking point. They managed to catch Monroe's hands to pull her back down as silence returned to the gathering. A voice asked, Young Realmus returns from the trial with companions and explains the lands? Perhaps, the elder said. We shall judge as Alayo speaks. The gathering returned to unison. Alayo is taken by the word, and the people bear witness. David shook with relief as the scaled-armored bodies of all around settled into rest. Monroe looked angry and terrified. Father was sickly pale in the green-filtered light. Fools, all of them, to let themselves get in this deep. Okay, so it looked better for them coming out alive now that the gathering had apparently judged them allies, or subjects, or at the least... Individuals not to be harmed, but the secret was out. He'd really gained nothing in stopping Monroe by his slight delay. None of their discoveries would be enough to save the colony. If Garinya was so sacred that it was forbidden even to the children of the people, then how could a human ever be accepted as a legitimate speaker? Really, 
Alayo was the only reason that they had been allowed here at all. What was it about Alayo? If she was an adult, why had she used signs with the escorts? But if she was a juvenile, why had she spoken in his presence before seeing the mouth? The more he understood, the more confusing it all became. He sank back to the wicker wall as she began to speak. I left the lands of leaves and broached the great desert, intending to seek the path of ice in the mountains beyond, she said. But beyond the salt line break, I discovered a strange glinting thing, open at one end like a spent sonamo pod, yet large enough to enter. My blood already sun simmering, I took shelter there, but the pod fell shut, and from behind a wall emerged a strange simian man. The bearded wanderer from beyond the lands importunes with his tongue, said several voices, which had to mean father. David flushed in embarrassment. Yes, said Alayo. I fell back, drawing my trial knife with little hope. But he did not attack. He waited, strange skin like soft leather slickened with mist. I invoked Krios Moody and Porifos Moody in vain. When I called upon him to show the courage of young Benorel, he opened his mouth and trespassed on the word. So I turned my back. I thought he had gone, but he returned with worse. I must ask you to come with me, he said, as if he believed himself a child in the house of leaves, or as if the mouth had opened at his back. The gathering shifted with breaths of shock. I bowed down on the knife metal floor and made signs of holy cleansing. It was then that the pod shook and rose into the air, a wind vessel bearing me away. The entire chorus had an answer for that, which resonated into David's back. The wife of Samuel Moody the Elder, stolen by enemies. No, said Alayo. Though I believed so then. Further in, the vessel was rich with pillowed seats and shining lights. It rose and rose until the overdark seeped in amidst the emerald air, and there in the well of deepest black, lay a house of metal to which they brought me. There I endured a cell like beaten shields, leafless, and without free-flowing water. In my dreams I found the mouth stopped. In my waking hours my captors showed me vile instruments of blasphemy. David shook his head at that. No wonder her reaction then. Was that how she interpreted a machine that could speak? I mourned, she said, until a day when a young one came, silent as an obedient child, no sociable words, and yet no blasphemy, only a beckoning hand. We walked the house of metal to its great windows, and before me the overdark flowed, sparkling with its stars like the river Oss in sunlight. Then this one pointed, and I fell prostrate, for in the darkness I saw a great mouth made of air and light. The crowd gasped as one, a sound underlayered with the rustle of scales and wicker, and the continuous hum of the mountain's mouth beyond the walls. Nezuma's moody felt fear before the multitude, said a voice. Alayo waved a hand. No, this is no lie, for you yourselves may see the mouth. 
It is the flower of the overdark which these men call the Makanli Nebula. And as from afar the mouth of singing crystal appears a bright speck on the mountainside, so from afar the mouth of the heavens appears a bud of pink, like Erios before it unfurls. This, our home, is our house of leaves, standing before the mouth of the heavens. Amidst the murmurs of the gathering, David heaved a sigh. Somehow the saddest thing about this was how much they had learned. Here in this place, Garinya was no longer a puzzle to be solved, something to be recorded, watched on a screen, then transcribed and analyzed in bits and pieces. In these voices it lived, every last name and obscure reference a part of the whole. While speaking, Alayo stood rapt, creating her tale like reverend poetry. Taken by the word, there she stood in the center of it, while humans could never hope to be anywhere but outside. Alayo turned to look at him. And then I understood these men, these humans. From the mouth they emerged, and therefore they speak. Like young Tarias the speaker, so possessed by the word that only death could stop his tongue. Possessed? David whispered, fascinated. Maybe that's what they mean by taken by the word, said Father. Maybe we could turn this to our advantage. I'll go up and speak with them, and... Despite his own temptation, David interrupted. And what, Father? We don't know enough to be sure. They could well decide you're insane. But surely... Father's voice trailed off. Atop the rock, Alayo bowed to her knees. The elder put a hand on her head and wrapped his staff. I call the gathering to judge, he said. Young Alayo went forth silent from our lands, a child untouched by the full force of the word. Fresh, untaken. The gathering almost sighed. Ah, the innocence of the child, Alayo. Her trial took her to places unknown, forcing her to rest among the blasphemous strangers and to bear witness to the strange wonders. And see, the seed of the word drinks in the new as a plant drinks water and grows strong. Soon the word shall burst forth in its full flower, said the voices. And now you have heard her tale. Shall she henceforth bear the word forward into the ranks of the moody? If any among the moody believe nay, speak now, or bow to the flower of the word which has opened before you. The ensuing silence of the gathering felt like an explosion in David's head. That was the missing social component— what exactly it was that made an adult, bringing about the change from silence to speech, the trial, a voyage of discovery for a child not yet restrained by sacred responsibility, giving her a single chance to do something totally unprecedented, to prove herself worthy to speak. That was the treasure he had found, and it was his chance. Before he knew it, he was up on his feet, pulling free of father's restraining hands, he half-danced across the dirt floor packed with Garaniki, who flicked feet and tails away from his footsteps, climbing the rock, just as the elder declared, I say young Alayo is no more. The trial ended, she is Alayo Moody before the gathering. Honor to Alayo Moody, the response washed over the central rock. The elder blinked at David. Possessed one, say what it is that you bring before me. I am David. Son of Arthur Linden, 
who importuned with his tongue. A thrill of fear and anticipation nearly unbalanced the deep bow he offered to the tiny elder. I bring a tale, if you will hear it. He held his breath. The elder considered for a long moment, but at last he stamped his staff on the rock. Young David today stands before us in the proper place, he called out. He shall be taken by the word before the gathering and be judged. David looked around at the house of leaves teeming with the people. Here he stood, finally at the center of everything Garini. These people already understood that their lives balanced on the word, on the tail which stood at the intersection of youth and maturity. Surely they could understand that the lives of dedicated colonists and the safety of this beautiful world could balance on a legal deadline that now stood at the conjunction of word and word. They would understand if he could tell his own tale truly. Let the sacred word take me, he said. He had forgotten the low, insinuating sound of the mouth, but at once it arose in hundreds of keening voices, singing in his body and penetrating his head. He waited for it to recede. It continued. This wasn't right. Before, with the others, it had disappeared immediately. Did he have to say something? His ears were ringing. His heart began to hammer in panic. There was something. He'd remembered it a moment ago. God, God, what did he have to say to make it stop? Alayo was looking at him, all golden eyes and emerald scales, beautiful and alien. She had said the words, but she would not prompt him now. She was whistling along with the others. Through the waves of sound, he fought to find his way back in, to put himself in her place, standing on the rock. But then a different vision slipped into his mind. He stood amidst a gathering of Garaniki with all the leaf-green planet beneath his feet, while before him the throat of the nebula opened on a river of light that filled him, pouring forth from his mouth and illuminated all of them. He opened his eyes and found the words, The people gathering in the house of leaves before the mouth, the word flows through the gathering, and I can speak. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Juliet Weird. Juliet, thank you so much for that. Julie and Paul, thank you so much for a fine narration. Teamwork. So that is it, Oral Delights 139. I hope you've enjoyed it. Which story do you prefer? Come over to the front of the website, you will see the poll. Just vote on, click on, and let me know. Next month I will tell you the winner. So I hope you enjoyed this show, I hope you enjoyed the stories, the narrations and I hope you enjoyed especially the cover as well of the Starship Sova's new Captain's Log book coming out very, very soon, the Transcriber Project. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.